Uh, well, as uh, those who were here last week, we've been working through Psalm 139. So if you want to open up your Bibles uh, to that, it'll help you get uh, on the page and be thinking about what we're going to be looking at today. Uh, we will go up on the screen and you will see some of it up there. Uh, we did Psalm 139 verses 1 to 16 last week. Uh, this week we're looking at verses 17 through to 24, the last part of it. Uh, I don't know whether any of you were there, but probably eight or ten years ago we did a camp up at Midgenville Hill, uh, which is in the back of Mullumbimby there. And uh, after that, uh, part of that camp, we did a walk up Mount Warning. And so uh, a number of us got organised to go up Mount Warning. So there were the, the older guys or the older people, anyone who was my age and up. And then there were the young guys, which were all my kids and younger. And, and so we went to the bottom of Mount Warning. And as we got out of the car, the kids just went poof. They were bolt, bang, they were off. And so unbeknownst to us, they had a challenge to see who could get up the mountain and get down the mountain the quickest. So their whole aim was not whether what to do once you got there. They were just to get up the top and get down as quickly as possible. Now, I'm not 100% exactly how they did that uh, time-wise, but I think it was something like uh, 50 minutes to an hour to get up Mount Morning and about 20 minutes to get down is what they did it in. So their whole aim was just to do it as quickly as they possibly could. Uh, well, the, the others of us, we just wanted to do it because we wanted to get up to the top and admire the view. Uh, not to conquer the mountain, not to think, yes, we can do this or how quick we can do it, but just to get there and look at the view. And it is an amazing view, isn't it? Uh, if you've ever walked to the top of Mount Warning and looked out across uh, on a clear day, uh, looked out and you see the sea, uh, you see right down to Byron, you see right north up to the Gold Coast, you can see right at the back of the hinterland and it is an amazing view. And when you get there, it changes your perspective a bit, doesn't it? Uh, if you've ever gone, climbed any mountain and got to the top of it, when you get to the top of it and you look down on things and across it, it just changes your perspective a bit, doesn't it? You look and think, wow, that's smaller or more beautiful or that's amazing or Wow, I didn't realise that was there. It just changes your perspective on things. Well, Psalm 139 is one of those psalms that you read that helps change your perspective. It's not one that you want to race through and see if you can read it as quickly as possible. It's not one that you want to try and get and pull every little bit apart and know what every word's about exactly. But it's one of those psalms that you read and you enjoy and it changes your perspective. It changes your perspective on who God is. Uh, when you read the first part of it, it, it tells us that God is everywhere, that uh, he knows all, he knows us completely, that he's all-knowing, he's everywhere, and that he's all-powerful because he creates everything and he creates us. But not only is he like that, this amazing, phenomenal God, but he's a very personal God who takes our hand and leads us, in verse 10, who moulds us and knits us together in our mother's wombs, this is a very personal God, isn't it? This isn't just something out there, a figure, some powerful being, but this is a God that steps into our lives and interacts with us and actually plans out our life. He says all our days are numbered uh, according to his plan at the end of Psalm 139 verse 16. It is an amazing psalm. Uh, and, and at the end of last week, we came to the point that that has to have some sort of outworking, doesn't it? That there needs to be some response to that. And uh, one of them it was that the response is, I want to praise God. But today we're going to be looking at some more responses because in the rest of Psalm 139, uh, David, the writer of the psalm, responds to this amazing picture. 
as he's got to the top of the mountain and he's looked out, the perspective is amazing. And now he responds to what he sees. As he takes a big view of God, has a look at himself and sees how God is intimately involved in his life. And then he comes out with some words in the rest of Psalm 139. So that's what we're going to do now. We're going to read the rest of it. Have a look at what David does. He responds. There's, a, there's an aspect in it where you think, wow, what's that about? Uh, it seems to jar, but we'll get to work through that together as well. So uh, Lynn Reed's going to come out the front and she's going to read Psalm 139, verses 17 through to 34. Uh, if you've got it, that in your Bibles, look at it or it's on the screen as well. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He's an encourager, isn't he? Uh, It is a great psalm, isn't it? And... uh, as, as we come here now, we're going to actually, if you see on the back of your service sheet that we've got about, I've got four points there on the back that we're going to be looking at together. So again, as I said last week, even though we pulled it apart last week and looked at sections of it, uh, don't let that deter you from just taking the whole, okay? Uh, because it's written as one long poem. It's a, one that you want to have all together. Uh, so as we go through this day, hopefully when you go home and read it again, uh, the things that you've heard from last week and today will help you to just gain even a greater sense of the beauty of this poem and that it'll impact you even more as you read it. So um, the first one there, you can see that uh, we're going to go through this and the first one, the point they've got on the top there is that um, uh, the, how precious are the thoughts of God, that we want to desire them more than anything else, that we are to seek his thoughts. Uh, you see, David's come to this passage and after he's gone through and he's thought about how amazingly he's been made and how God has been so intimately involved in that. Remember last week that uh, we said that you and I individually are more intricate and more special in one sense than the whole universe. That the whole universe uh, is huge. We look out at those starry nights at night and we go, wow, look at all those stars. But what David does is he comes back and he looks back at us and sees that we are even more amazing than the universe. Do you know that we have 75 trillion cells in our body? 75 trillion. Remember we said that last week. That if we took out all our capillaries, our veins, our arteries, if we took them out of us and we lined them up one long line, it would go round the world three times. That there are over a million uh, rods that come from one side of our eye, optical eye, comes out from the other side and they join together to form our eye. And those one million have to meet exactly. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, David says. 
And he says, if there is a God who knows everything, who is everywhere, who is all-powerful, who knows me, who's fearfully made me, who guides me and directs me, has all my days ordained forever, then I should seek his thoughts. That they are more precious than any gold, jewel or whatever. And so we're going to go out there and we're going to show you one of the... Tell me what this is. Does anyone know what this is? I know the pictures aren't as good on the thing there. Does anyone know what they are? What it is? No, it's not amber. No. It does look tortoiseshell. Do you know what it is? It is the world's largest diamond. See, diamonds aren't always clear. This is the world's largest diamond. It's called the Golden Jubilee Diamond. It is 545.67 carats, which is 109.3 grams, <laughs> uh, is what it is. Uh, and, and it's the largest one that's ever been had. It's uh, owned by the uh, King of Thailand and it's his, in his own collection now and he has it there. And they reckon that that diamond by itself is worth $12.3 million, just in and of itself. And we do that, don't we? If you look at all the different places, if you look at all the kingdoms, they have all their jewels, they have them locked up as the most precious things that are around. But what David is saying to us here, that they pale into insignificance in comparison to knowing the thoughts of God. That understanding him and knowing him is far more precious than anything you could possibly have. I wonder whether we really believe that. Where do you seek your thoughts from? Where do you spend your time? Uh, Do you seek it in the latest new idea? Do you pan through the new idea magazine, getting all the information out of that? Or is it out of Sports Illustrated? Or is it out of the Sydney Morning Herald? Or is it as you listen to Oprah during the week? Or Dr Phil? Or whoever it may be, all these things out there. How much time do we spend looking through those things and gaining that sort of information thing? How much time do we spend gaining and thinking about God's thoughts and how precious they are? How much time do we just spend contemplating him? How much time do we spend looking into his word? Because this is where his thoughts are. Panning through this, thinking through this, contemplating this, thinking through God's word and and thinking, wow, that is amazing about God. And then just taking some time to think about it. Not trying to race down through the passage and get to the bottom of it as quickly as you can, but taking some time to enjoy the perspective. David says, God, your thoughts are more precious than the most precious stones ever, more precious than the golden jubilee diamond. He says, if I were to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. Uh, they are more than we can possibly imagine. You know, uh, It's a bit like an iceberg, isn't it? You see the top of it, Uh, But under it, it's just a whole lot bigger. When you start looking at God and understanding who he is and what he's like, you get a little bit of the top and then it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and huge. So much, he says, that he'd go to sleep counting them. Because he says, next one, when I wake, I'm still with you. So he started counting the thoughts of God and he's gone to sleep. He's counted so many of them. This is a cure for insomnia. Think of the amount of God's thoughts. (laughs) It cures you, it sends you to sleep and then you wake up And you keep thinking about them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast vast are the sum of them. It's a great challenge for us, isn't it, to think about that. How much time are we spending seeking God's thoughts? 
in amongst all the stuff that we do, how much time each day do we spend just contemplating him? How much time in a week, in a month, in a year? When we added it up, I think we would find that it's a rather small percentage of our whole time. But yet they are more precious than anything else we can go for. That's what Paul, uh, David's encouraging us to seek God's thoughts because uh, they are more precious than anything else. And if they are more precious than anything else, then we should be jealous about them as well. Uh, this is where the next part of the passage comes in, in verses uh, 19 to 22. And in some ways we think this is a bit of a jarring passage, isn't it? This sort of, we're speaking about the grandiose bits of God and then suddenly we're about hatred and horrible and blah and all this sort of stuff. And we think, what's this about? Well, I think what uh, David is saying here is that if we have this uh, amazing view of God, if we see his thoughts more precious than anything else, that he is more greater than gold and silver and diamonds and rubies, then we want to be jealous about him. That we would desire other people to know him. That we would desire that other people don't bring him down. And that we'd be jealous for the things that he's jealous about. I think what he's saying to us here is that we need to be jealous for justice. Because you see, when he's talking about here, you, you would slay the wicked, the bloodthirsty, the evil intent. He's actually talking about people who are doing the wrong thing. And not just little things, but they're bloodthirsty. They're killing people. They're wiping people out. He's talking about people who are doing mass genocide. He's talking about people who are in places like Burma who are killing people because they don't want them to speak. He's talking about people who have wiped people out, destroyed people, taken advantage of people. And I think sometimes that we forget a little bit about that, don't we? We think of God the God of love, but he's also the God of justice. And I'll tell you what, I don't think we would want to love a God of love who doesn't have justice, who just lets things go. If we had a God who just let things go, then we wouldn't like that, would we? We want people, we want to see justice done. When we see things wrong in the world... We desire justice to be there and so does God. He is a holy God and he desires justice and he encourages us to desire the same. We really should be people who are passionate when we see injustice in the world, when we see people who are downtrodden and wiped out, when we see kids who are maltreated and mistreated, when we see miscarriages of justice. We should be people who are passionate about that and in our own little ways should be trying to do something to change that. Now, some of us can't do a lot, but pray. Some of us can give money to organisations who do that. Some of us can support missionaries who are over there, like Mon, who is dealing with the injustice of what's happening in the Burma-Thailand border and at the same time giving, bringing the good news of Jesus. We can support people who are solicitors. We can support people who we know who are out there fighting and, and trying to stand up for the downtrodden, for our police force. For those who are out there trying to do that, we should support them and encourage them, shouldn't we? For the people who work for docs, our social workers. Do you know that in Australia today, the amount of referrals that our doc system gets regards to children being abused and mistreated uh, is so high that they cannot deal with everyone. I was speaking with someone the other day who made a complaint to docs or made a referral to docs um, about someone in their family had all this information that they passed on to them, uh, gave it to them, uh, heard nothing from them for two weeks, rang them back 
and said, look, we just don't have enough people on the ground to deal with what you've just given us. We can't take it on. And here are about two or three kids that I know of who are in great danger in a family and they can't do it. That should rip our heart out, shouldn't it? Do you know that in Australia they don't have enough people to foster kids that are out there? That it's getting to an epidemic point that the number of kids that need to be fostered, that they, they don't, the Australian government doesn't know what to do with them. They don't want to institutionalise them, but they can't do anything else with them because there are not enough families to take on children that have been left, disregarded, or for whatever circumstances, they can't be with their families. It's a challenge, isn't it? God is a God of justice. His heart bleeds for those things. I think that's what this passage is saying to us, that we, if we have an understanding of how God is involved and intimately involved in this world, his heart bleeds for things like that and he desires us to have his heart to reach out to those like that. So we have to desire and seek justice, be jealous for justice. And we need to be jealous for justice when people speak ill of God as well and try to wipe him out. You know, if someone has a go about Tasmania, I'll stand up for them, all right? You can only make jokes about Tasmanian if you're Tasmanian. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, that's part of it. It's part of the deal. I'll stand up because I'm Tasmanian. I don't know whether any of you watched uh, the comedy festival the other night and I can only watch bits of it because there's just too much swearing that goes on in it. But there's one guy called Mitch Ninkin. Ninkin. He's a guy who plays these songs and he's singing a song about only gingers can make jokes about gingers. Same thing. Uh, stand up for gingers. You stand up for that. If uh, someone has a go at my children, I'll, I'll defend them. I'll stand up for them. If someone has a go at my wife, then I'll jealously protect her. But how often do I stand up and jealously protect God? Not that he needs my protection, by the way. <laughs> but how often do I stand up and jealously put forth him and how good he is? You see, that's what David's doing here. He's saying, all these people are having a go at God and I'm going to stand up for you. Uh, justice needs to be done and I'm jealous for justice and I'm jealous for you, God, because you are the awesome God who knows everything, who is everywhere, who created everything, who's intimately involved in my life, who loves me even though you know me completely. I'm going to stand up for you. I'm going to be jealous for you. Now, because we're this side of Jesus, we know that that's not the way we're going to pray, the way that David prayed. I'm not going to pray that God wipes people out and kills people and that sort of thing because we know this side of Jesus, we are praying that we are to love our enemies and care for them. Uh, he changes the diagram a little bit, but Jesus doesn't, say, doesn't change the fact that we need to stand up for God, to be jealous for him, to get out there for him. So we are to seek God's thoughts, that we are to be jealous for justice, uh, we are to be jealous for him, and therefore, also, we need to ask God to do a deep scan on us. Because it's not all about out there, it's also about in here. Uh, look at verse 22 there. It says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Jump down one, guys. Uh, who can tell me what this is? Uh, not an MRI, but similar. It's a CT scan. Okay. Uh, and the, some of you may have had these before or uh, experienced them in some way, shape or form. But what they're doing these days, they're using, using CT scans to do deep scans of your body 
and people who aren't ill are going and getting these scans and they're trying to pick up stuff before you can find it. Uh, and they go through and they try and find the little things that may possibly be going wrong and then try to help you on the other side. Now they're charging you lots of money to do that and uh, the, the experts, the theory's a bit out on that one, whether it's a good or a bad thing. But the idea of the deep scan is it goes from head to foot and scans every aspect of your body to check out what's wrong with it so that you can either do something about it or get it fixed. David here in this passage is asking for God to do a deep scan of him and who he is, of every aspect of his life, to open up every part of himself for God to have a look at and check it out. That's scary, isn't it? Every little part of his life. That's what we're saying when we say these words. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He's asking for a deep scan and for God to come in and transform him and cleanse him. You see, when we get to Jesus, we know that he does do a deep scan on us and in his deep scan on us, he does find stuff wrong with us because there's sin within us. There's stuff that we do wrong. There is our rebellion against God's rule in our life. It is eating away at our internals. It is destroying us and consuming us. And Jesus comes in and cleanses us and gets rid of everything so that when God does the deep scan on us, he sees Jesus. Instead of us. He sees his perfection instead of our imperfection. He takes it all on himself. In a sense, Jesus comes in and takes a scan for us and takes all the things that we do wrong and that's what he goes to the cross for. And he takes it there and that's our healing that happens there. For all the sin that we've done in life, our healing happens on the cross. We don't have to go through chemo. We don't have to go through radiation therapy. We don't have to have internals taken out of us. Jesus does it for us. That deep scan. Jesus comes in and transforms us. You know, one of the things I love about this is that I don't know about you, but I don't know whether I'd really want every one of you to know exactly everything that goes on in my life. I think if you knew everything that goes on in my life and what I think about you sometimes, you wouldn't love me. (laughs) But I know that's the same about you with me. There are aspects of all of us, isn't there, that we don't really want everyone to know that because we think they mightn't love us because of that. You know, God does the deep scan of you. He knows everything about you and he still loves you. He loves you so much that he deals with whatever's going on in there. He takes it upon his son. He nails it to the cross. And then he takes Jesus back from the dead and then he gives us his spirit to lead us in the paths everlasting. You see, that's the last point. Not only do we want to seek his thoughts, not only do we want to be jealous for his justice, not only do we want to desire a deep scan, but we want to enjoy his transformation. If you have a look at just about any other religion in the world, it's very much God there, you here, God tells you what to do or gives you the guidelines or the directions and you just are supposed to somehow follow it. 
Christianity is so much different because what it does is there is God there and us here. He tells us what to do, but he doesn't leave us here. He actually comes and lives within us by his spirit and then moves us forward and transforms us and changes us by his Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus says to us, I'll never leave you alone. So if you go up to the next one. I'll come back to that picture in a minute. Go to the next one. Uh, in verse 24 he says, and lead me in the way everlasting. In verse 10 he says, now have your hand to guide me and lead me. Because David is this side of the cross, remember. But on the other side of the cross we know that God just doesn't take us by a hand and lead us. It's not just flesh on flesh in a sense, but it's actually heart on heart. He comes and leads us and takes us from the inside. Uh, it's a wonderful picture, isn't it? A father and a son holding the hand and leading the child along, isn't it? It's a beautiful picture. And you can see yourself in that, can't you? And you're seeing pulling them back from the path as they fall over or as they get down, you try and hold them up and lead them along. And that's the picture that David's painting here in Psalm 139 of a God who does that. But you know the amazing thing is when we get to the New Testament, as I just said again, it's even better than that. We don't just have God beside us holding us by the hand. We have God within us by his spirit. It's not just flesh on flesh, it's heart on heart. Have a think about that for a while. Because that is amazing stuff. No other religion anywhere in the world has that intimate, loving, personal relationship of God to his people. That's God to us. You see, we don't have to try and change our lives. It's not up to us to transform our lives completely. Yes, we want to be part of that process, but we're not doing it alone. Jesus says, I'll be with you to the very end of the age. He is there with us. He is within us, leading us and guiding us and taking us on the paths everlasting. You're never alone. Never alone. Psalm 139. It's like getting to the top of the mountain, isn't it? You look out and you're blown away by the view. It changes your perspective. Psalm 139 changes our perspective of God and changes our perspective of ourselves. It should bring us to our knees, shouldn't it? To praise him, to seek his thoughts, to desire, to be jealous for justice, to be wanting to have that deep scan and to be enjoying that transformation that he brings by his spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's, uh, uh, it does take our breath away as we just uh, think about and read your word. As we contemplate you, Lord, help us to do that more. By your spirit who is within us, Lord, when we trust and believe in you. Help us, Lord, to seek your thoughts. Help us to be jealous for your justice. Help us to seek you to scan us and change us and transform us, Lord. And Lord, by your spirit, lead us in our ways everlasting. Lead us to you. Lord, we pray that this week, as we lead into Easter, that we may take a moment to stand on that mountain 
take a deep breath to survey you and to be blown away by you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.